You're listening to the Discriminology Podcast, the podcast that arms you with the knowledge and the tools to dismantle discrimination. With me, one of your hosts, Malik Sila. On this season finale of Discriminology, we will be discussing and reflecting the significance of two historical events in Black history, Juneteenth and the Tulsa Massacre. Despite their historical significance, there are still measurable gaps in education and awareness around both historical events. But before we jump into today's subject matter, Steve, would you like to introduce a surprise guest we have for today's show? Sure. Tonight we have Mrs. Esther Hernandez Kramer, a lifelong educator who grew up in Houston, Texas, which is the main reason that we invited her on tonight for her experience in the Deep South. She is a Rice graduate, brings tremendous expertise to tonight's discussion. So welcome, Mrs. Kramer. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. It's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. So to jump into today's topic, uh, we figured we would address some commonly asked questions and concerns surrounding Juneteenth and Tulsa. So a great way to start is what even is Juneteenth? If you've never heard of it, um, or have recently heard of it, but you lack context. Juneteenth is short for June 19th. It is a historical holiday that commemorates the actual end of slavery in 1865, uh, specifically when Union General Gordon Granger arrived in Galveston, Texas, to ensure that all slaves were set free. This came two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, which was made by Abraham Lincoln, which purported to set all of the slaves free. This essentially created a situation where many slaves didn't know they were free for the duration of the two and a half years. So, Steve, uh, just to give clarity on the Emancipation Proclamation for our listeners that are either fuzzy from history class or don't know what the Emancipation Proclamation is, can you tell us what it is and why it didn't set the slaves free if that was the intended purpose? Yeah, absolutely. So the Emancipation Proclamation issued by Lincoln in 1863, was an attempt really by him to put pressure on the states that were still in full rebellion. It's commonly known that there were negotiations going on throughout the Civil War uh, about ending and bringing back the southern states full, you know, fully into the Union. And slavery was not really, ending slavery was not really the, the issue at the beginning. It was spread of slavery and new states and, and, and all of those things. But slavery um, for Lincoln became the primary issue later in the war. So he started using it as really as leverage. And he actually offered the southern states that were in rebellion compensation for the slaves. He said, you know, there, there were offers to pay fair price for lost property, as sick as that sounds. But that, that was his offer uh, in order to set them free. And the southern states declined. So it was... It was apparent by 1863 that they were never going to never were going to concede that slavery needed to end by the war. So 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation comes, which only freed the slaves that were in states that were in rebellion. It did not free the states that were still loyal to the union. It did not free the slaves in the states that were still loyal to the union. Those are the border states. Those are Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri, who were loyal to the Union, still had slaves 
yet were not freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. So even even these states that were still in the Union had slaves that were not that were not freed in 1863. So the Emancipation Proclamation really didn't set anyone free. No one was freed by by that proclamation because the Union hadn't occupied any of those southern states yet. They had made deals with these border states to remain loyal and they could keep their slaves. They could keep their slaves. So the Emancipation Proclamation, although in theory and what you know is commonly taught, freed the slaves, did not do that. Of course, it became the battle cry for the Union as they started moving through the South. And it was used really to convince a lot of the slaves in the South to leave the plantation plantations and join the Union Army, which many did. It's The numbers are are pretty impressive. Over 200,000 freed slaves eventually joined the Union, and, and that is due to the Emancipation Proclamation. So what happened in some of these further states, like Texas, where the Union Army really wasn't, the message never got there. They knew the Emancipation Proclamation was, was made, but they ignored it. And in fact, people in the South from, from bordering states or close by states actually took their slaves to Texas because they knew that they would be able to keep them in Texas because the proclamation didn't uh, didn't really affect them there. So that's that's a lot of the context behind that. It wasn't until 1865 when the Union finally got to Texas. They arrived in Galveston, which is a, a barrier island, much much like uh, much like uh, Long Beach here on Long Island. It's a barrier island off the south southern part of Texas just about 45 miles south of Houston. The the Union Army arrived there, and that is when Granger freed the slaves in Texas. That's the official date. That happened on June 19th, so Juneteenth. That's uh, that's my historical lecture uh, part of the series. So I'm assuming the duration of the war is why we ended up with the two and a half years after the, Emancipa- the Emancipation Proclamation. That was really the main point of delay. Right. So from 1863 to 1865, uh, unless the Union had occupied a rebellious state, the slaves remained in slavery. They, they remained in bondage. Um, it wasn't until the Union Army came occupied that they were able to, you know, re- really free the slaves, not just in, in name like the Emancipation Proclamation. Gordon Granger comes in, he gives order number three, which was the order that was in coordination with the Emancipation Proclamation. Was it as simple as all the slaves just got up and walked off the plantation or like how did that happen in real life? Yeah, no, that, that's that's certainly not how it ever happened, right? You know, the army, the army had to occupy, the army had to go into these plantations, read these orders to these people, force them to surrender. You know, I'm talking about the plantation owners. Uh, force them to surrender, force them to to allow their slaves to go. Now, many many plantation owners did flee because they knew it was going to happen when the Union got there, and and they tried to bring as many slaves with them as they could. Um, but many slaves stayed behind, and and there are all sorts of stories about slaves staying behind. Um, now that they've been freed by the Union, occupying the house, occupying the plantation, taking over, settling in. Um, so, you know, none, none of this was, oh, yeah, the union's here. They said they're free. Let's celebrate. How, however, I will say June, June 19th in Galveston, 
was a tremendous celebration. So that's really where we get the Juneteenth celebration from, because it really was this incredible celebratory thing, because it really did signify the end. They were end of slavery. They were the last holdout um, where where plantations were still operating, where cotton was still being being picked and and cultivated. There are all sorts of stories about about Granger delaying the the proclamation until the harvest was over. I, I I think a lot of that has been mythologized. I don't I don't think there's any real good historical proof that any of that really happened. But what really did happen was there was a two year delay between the Emancipation Proclamation and the last of the slaves in Texas being freed. That that is for sure. I think it would be a good point in the show to talk about. I know you referenced the original Juneteenth celebrations, but Mrs. Kramer, you are from Texas, so can you give some insight to maybe how you've witnessed Juneteenth celebrations throughout your life and childhood and maybe some of the differences between your experience in living in the South and then obviously moving to the North to teach? I I was conflicted about coming on the show because I was explaining to my husband that um, as a Texan, I knew of Juneteenth. I'd see it on TV. I'd see that, you know, there were parades and celebrations. Um, but because it happened over the summer, it didn't happen during school, right? There was never anything in schools about it. Um, and for the first, you know, up until fourth grade, I was in deep South Texas where there are Mexicans and Mexican-Americans and that's it. There are no, there were no black people when, where I grew up, there were no white people. It was just Mexican, Mexican Americans. And so it wasn't until I got to Houston that I had even heard of it. And then it just became kind of commonplace that I knew of it, but I didn't partake or personally witness any celebrations. So, um, but I did know it was kind of a big deal, but it was a big deal within the black community. Now, if you zoom out of Texas, uh, we can give some anecdotes that we discussed in our episode prep. Uh, Mr. Kramer, you asked me, you asked Sydney first if we ever even heard of Juneteenth. Have you ever been to any celebration? So I, I guess I'll go first. I never heard of it until last summer, and I have never seen any type of celebration. In fact, Mr. Kramer sent me an ad for a celebration, and that's kind of even the first time I've even seen a celebration promoted. So just to give con, because I, I thought that I think that's interesting because you said it was big in the black community. And I think it's important for our listeners to know that that's not a universal big event in the Black community, at least not yet. So in Texas, it's a big event within the Black communities in the big cities. Uh, Texas was its own country. It still thinks it's its own country. So, you know, I, I have no idea how it's experienced in rural places in Texas and smaller towns in Texas. It's just the big cities have the big celebrations. It's just like, you know, big kind of. It's a big family day. So Houston, 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 Dallas. Austin. Yeah. Dallas is one of the more conservative. It's the only real conservative big city in Texas, Dallas, Fort Worth area. It's big oil money. Um, but San Antonio, anywhere we have a large, significant black population, you have Juneteenth in Texas. Do you know if it was mentioned um, or even or taught even in in the schools in those big cities where the celebrations were maybe were more prominent. Uh, as far as I know, it wasn't really taught in the schools. Uh, you just kind of knew about it. You knew it, it was covered by the news, 
but it wasn't really taught. And I mean, I taught Texas history. It's got a big old textbook, you know, the biggest textbook you can imagine because it's Texas, right? Because <laughs> uh, we need a big textbook. And, um, you know, I, I'm not sure Juneteenth is mentioned in there, honestly. Or if it is, it's just barely mentioned, prob- probably. So when when I went down to Texas, so it, it, I, I taught in Texas for seven years. That's where Mrs. Kramer and I met in, in that school. And when I when I went down there, that was the first I had ever heard of Juneteenth after mm-hmm. coming through you know, high school and college. Never, never knew it existed. Didn't know it was a thing. And then my first year down there, my my mentor teacher um, was showing me all of his things. And so, and there was this really beautiful um, embossed proclamation from the Granger, from the Granger Proclamation 3, uh, declaring all, all the slaves to be free in Texas. I said, well, what is this? And he said, oh, that's Juneteenth. How do you not know what Juneteenth is? So I I think it's, it's one of the more interesting whitewashing of history that the South teaches it, but not the North. And I find that, you know, that that you really get that that turned on its head where you think the northern liberal blue states are gonna be, you know, really teaching everything and really going for it and everything. And it's and it's the southern it's the southern states that that have celebrated this since the Civil War. Uh, there were the original celebrations, like I said, started in Galveston, but spread very, very quickly to Houston where um, some wealthy black landowners started collecting money and they actually bought 10 acres of land in Houston and they named it Emancipation Park. And it's still there today. It still exists. The The big Houston celebrations are held there. And I never knew any of this until I moved to Texas and started teaching down there. So I, I, I do know that that in my particular middle school where I taught, we taught it in our department. Um, I, there's no way you can say that that was um, universally taught throughout the school district. You know, we had a we had a pretty amazing social studies department in the middle school that I taught in, with uh, with some really great people, and they were they were extremely progressive. They talk about the shock for me, you know, coming out of liberal North School Manhattan, going down to Texas and finding this like bastion of liberalism in the middle of Houston. It was really kind of cool. So I I was exposed to Juneteenth, you know, kind of, I, I guess, later in the year when I got down there. But, you know, my education was extended down there uh, about these. And I, and I find it really interesting. We were, you know, the, we were talking during the prep that the black community in the South celebrates it. And the black community in the North, in the North didn't know it existed until last year. I, I find that I find that fascinating about about American culture. So I, I had texted a friend in preparation for the episode. Um, she's one of my best friends. She's a white Texan. I said, you know, would you say most Texans know what Juneteenth is? Uh, and she said, I know the community I work in has yearly Juneteenth fest festivities. I think most white people know it is a thing, but I agree most don't know the reason or history behind it. And she went to high school with me. You know, I graduated Shropson High School in 1989. I, I don't remember learning about it at all. It was just kind of through osmosis. So like Stephen said, by the time ni- the 90s came, we were teaching, they'd made a little bit of, of a jump, but only if people kind of really wanted to teach it. I don't think it was stressed. 
you know, you teach it if you want to teach it. And if you don't teach it, then, eh, you know. I think that parlays right into, Mr. Kermit, you sent over a Louisiana textbook screenshot yeah. to me. Yeah, Mrs. Kramer found this one. This 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 was all her. She should uh, she should take most of the credit for all of this anyway. I'm just throwing that out there for our listeners, just so you know. But uh, but yeah, this is this is amazing. See, Dad, I don't know if you want to take it away. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about this. I found this. Um, I follow a lot of a lot of Twitter accounts, so I found this on Twitter. A lot of the things I find, I find on Twitter. I think that social media is hugely important in kind of reclaiming education, right? And not allowing certain topics to be kind of um, shoved under a rug and forgotten because, you know, Black Twitter won't let, you know, will keep topics uh, alive and around and to bring attention to it. Um, academic Twitter will also do that. And so I found this account by Joshua Benton. He's um, he's at Harvard University, and he founded a journalism, Neiman Journalism Lab. And what he does a lot is he kind of sheds a lot of light into Southern history. Uh, and so he, he posted this long thread about two approved Louisiana uh, history textbooks that approved for the state's eighth graders. One of them introduces the topic of the Civil War as tough times for a poor young white woman whose family owned 120 slaves, <laughs> you know? The whole thread is, and now this is how it introduces Reconstruction. He says, through the gosh darn stick-to-itiveness of Francis Nichols, the ex-Confederate redeemer who crushed black political rights. <laughs> and it was just example, after example, uh, you know, of life in antebellum Louisiana, and and this book was published in 2015. You know, uh, again, Texas has a long and problematic his, uh, history of censoring textbooks and presenting very very biased accounts of history, and uh, notable omissions from history. So when the question becomes who writes the textbooks and who owns those textbooks and who adopts the textbooks and who adopts the state standards for history, who owns history? Um, and that's kind of where we are right now. So speaking of, I guess, omitted history, uh, I think that brings us right into Tulsa. And I, I've noticed through a lot of media presentations or representations that Tulsa is often connected to Juneteenth or it enters the news cycle around the same time. Um, and we discussed this prior. I think we all have different, um, not different, but we, I guess we gave alternative responses as to why. So I'll go first. The first time I saw Tulsa being connected to Juneteenth, I mean, granted, this is a short frame of time because I said earlier in the show that I had learned about Juneteenth a year ago, but I really saw it when the Trump administration was campaigning for reelection and they wanted to schedule a rally in Tulsa on Juneteenth. And to Mrs. Kramer's point, uh, Black Twitter, and I guess that ultimately influenced the entire news cycle, but it really it really kicked up in the media. And eventually the, the rally was rescheduled to the next day. But that was kind of the first time I saw them connected to one another. I, I, don't, I don't really know any other historical connections beyond that, but I know... Steve and, and Sydney, you gave 
other reasons as to why they may be connected into the new cycle. So I, I'd, I'd like to hear from you two as well. Prior to last year and prior to um, the rally that Malik just mentioned that happened that was scheduled last year during the Trump administration, there was really no connection between the two events themselves for me. I learned very early actually in my life that 4th of July was not an, a holiday um, to be celebrated in, independently for the black community. Um, but again, even when I learned that, like even when I learned that the 4th of July was not like our holiday, um, to put in quotes, I still didn't know about Juneteenth until a couple of years ago. So definitely when the Trump administration pulled that move last year, um, it it opened my eyes to to the connection that um, it clearly had in his in his administration, because obviously it was scheduled on that date at that location. So to Steve's earlier point about the whitewashing of history and how whitewashing of history is done by a certain group of people. And like it's it kind of like it's it's. It's interesting to see how this administration coincidentally was able, you know, was able to like make this connection to the media and to like the other people and to the black community. And we were able to to take from that what we learned from it. But um, to me, there, there, other than that, there was never any connection between the two holidays. I didn't know about either of them, didn't learn about either of them in school, um, was never taught either about either of them during Black History Month, et cetera. So it was really interesting to see how that played out because now I feel like for for me at least it's gonna forever they're gonna forever be connected. I feel like so. You kind of just said it. Maybe that's what they have in common is the fact that they're they're both seemingly omitted pieces of Black history. Maybe that's what they have in common. You know, last summer and I think the George Floyd assassination really um, lifted the veil on a lot of things, and I think that. Uh, some of these events, some of these huge events, and you know, we we were talking about these earlier, have have totally left the conscious, uh, the the consciousness of the of the country. They have been so, as Mrs. Kramer said, swept under the rug, forgotten, not taught, left out, omitted. That there there are so many of these events. These are not. These are certainly not the only two events that have that have been uh, forgotten to history. But I think just like in the 1950s, when Bull Connor on on national TV opened up the fire hoses and let the dogs loose, I think last summer had the same effect on the rest of the country, the country that had been asleep the part of the country that had its head in the sand, the part of the country that wasn't paying attention to race relations, all of a sudden woke up. And we have all of these people now who have, you know, I'm not going to steal from history and call it a new Great Awakening or anything like that, but there seems to be a a revived um, zealousness to start talking about these things again and discovering these things again and researching these things again. And they're entering it back into the American, um, the American conscious through a lot of different ways. Uh, people are researching them. They're showing up in pop culture. Um, two shows that that I think you know, one that I watched the whole thing, which I thought was amazing, was Lovecraft Country uh, by Jordan Peele. Uh, the Tulsa race riots were a huge part of that show, and I don't think that um, without the events, the national events of last year, and 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 the incredible protests, the Black Lives Matter protests, and our protests that that Malik organized here in Farmingdale, 
I, I don't think I've seen anything like that in my lifetime. And, and, and I'm old and, you know, I was born after Bull Connor and I was born after the sixties, you know, I, I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen anything like that summer before. I think that summer is going to um, be one of the big turning points. So I think to connect these two events, they're connected only in that they're two events that were forgotten to history. And they're two events that have come back uh, to the forefront because they are such massive events. They are such important events. They are such important moments in American history. And there's this renewed energy to talk about them. There's a renewed energy to research them. Um, Esther, you you know the the guys who uh, did Watchmen. Do you, do you have those guys? Um. No, I, I didn't pull it up. I just saw Regina King. Reg, Regina King was in that show, uh, Watchmen, where they, uh, it, you know, put a new spin on the graphic novel. Um, and that was actually 2019. So it was a year before Lovecraft Country. And it really, there was 20,000 responses to her tweet saying, this is the first I've ever heard of it. This is the first I've ever heard of this, right? And it's not an accident that was the first that people have ever heard of it. Um, in, in Oklahoma, they had a commission in 2001 called the Race Right Commission. And then in 2012, there was actually a bill up in the Oklahoma Senate to force Oklahoma schools to teach about the Oklahoma, about the Tulsa race riot, which was they were referencing it at the time, and it failed. Right, it failed. It was deliberately being whitewashed or just hidden. But I think an important point, though, is that um, you know these stories were kept alive through the survivors through a network of the black community and you know they've never forgotten it and you know they've kept it alive so that story makers and filmmakers can make these stories and bring new light to them um and i think it's going to be much the same way with uh with the social media people just follow this one guy michael harriott he's he writes for the root I don't know if you guys are familiar with him, but he said, you know, check out other Black Wall Streets. And he listed like five or six other Black Wall Streets, that it's a deliberate attempt to like control the narrative. Tulsa. Yeah. yeah, you're the control of the narrative. There was only one Black Wall Street, only one, you know, it was the exception to the rule that Black people had pr- prosperous, um, nice neighborhoods, you know? And, and I think the more that um, all these stories get exposed, I think the better off we all are. I think we owe our listeners a little bit of context who aren't familiar with the terms Black Wall Street or even Tulsa Massacre or Tulsa Race Riot. So just to start off, um, what was Black Wall Street? So Black Wall Street, let me back up. The, the The Tulsa Race Massacre, um, was a reaction to um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there was a, an area, a neighborhood called Greenwood, the Greenwood uh, neighborhood. Uh, and it was a prosperous black business area. They had black um, neighborhoods. And uh, on one horrific day, um, a 
they they burned down over 30 city blocks, killed maybe two, they found mass graves, uh, maybe 250, 300 people died, they estimate, um, in response to a, um, of course, a made up account that a boy, a black boy touched a white woman. Uh, it was in the papers and then next thing you know, um, mobs of white, white people came into the neighborhood and, and burned the entire place down. And not one person ever, ever was convicted of any crime with regards to the horrific event. Some of the details were like really disturbing to me. So I, I, I've seen in history that this young boy has been referred to as a man, which is another stereotype. He was a 16 year old boy and he tripped on, he literally tripped and fell and, and, fell onto this white woman that was in an elevator and that was purported to be a sexual assault um as you're saying um and then that was on the front page of the paper before anything else like it was literally within a day this was like front page news that you know this this quote unquote black man sexually assaulted uh this white woman in, in an elevator um and as you're saying this this white mob pulled up to the uh the courthouse where the boy is being held, try, demanding that he be lynched, um, which again speaks to a lot of other historical parallels, but demanding that this boy be lynched, not even face due process, but be lynched based off of an accusation. And then I think around like 25, uh, 25 black members of the Greenwood district, who some of them are World War I veterans, uh, came to defend the boy, the sheriff shooed them, and then the crowd ballooned, as you were saying, to like over like a thousand, like just a massive storm of people. Um, <clears throat> obviously outnumbered these these armed black men. And if I wasn't clear, both sides were armed. Uh, so these armed black men retreated into Tulsa district. And as you said, they just wrecked the whole place. I mean, they burnt it down, they looted, they killed, they murdered people. And I even saw that there was this narrative that there was a large scale black insurrection in the Tulsa district, which contributed to the mass hysteria of that white population even more. More white people poured in to just completely devastate the neighborhood. Um, yes, they they came from all over. Uh, um, and the, the Red Cross estimate, they estimated 1,256 houses were burned, 215 others were looted. Two newspapers, a school, a library, a hospital, churches, hotels, stores, and many other Black-owned businesses were among the buildings destroyed or damaged by fire. Um, you know, seventy-five. there were 75 armed Black men met by 1,500 white men. You know, that's a, a, the, the photos are stunning. Stunning. And for context to our listeners, um, just just for context, uh, the charges against the 16 year old boy uh, were dropped. It was it was you know determined that this was not a sexual assault, and um, he was not convicted. The charges were actually dropped, and the charges by the time the charges were dropped, this this massacre had already occurred. Um, and so just to, to give some more context to our listeners about the ju the judicial system and the way that it is set up, you know to to do to to support really what happened this this day there were reports that there were 
police involved, um, you know, with with involved in the in the mob that massacred this neighborhood. And, um, you know, kind of just I, I kind of literally just came into my head that this is very this this parallels scarily close to what happened on January 6th, 2021. And even what you said in terms of uh, the state commission reporting that there was involvement by police there was more than just like involvement like oh like some of them were participating in in the arson and and killings but they also deputized a lot of civilians and gave them weapons which is insane like i don't i don't even really have the words for that in terms of the tulsa police force actively engaging in a not one if not one of like the biggest hate crime event in in u.s history it's it's definitely up there. Yes, it's one of the deadliest. Second deadliest uh, riot, right? They well, call quote even, unquote riot. Yeah, it's one of the riots ever. Um, but I found interesting in terms of the cover up, Oklahoma Bureau of Vital Statistics officially recorded thirty six people dead. Historians estimate though that the death toll may be have been as high as three hundred. That's quite quite wiggle room in that data right there (laughs) yeah 36 or 300 which is it you know we keep going back to controlling the narrative um in the aftermath or the cover-up a jury coined the tulsa race riot a quote-unquote negro uprising and blamed the event on on quote-unquote colored men and cited that the white mob and this is quote unquote, were purely spectators and curiosity seekers and did not engage in the violence whatsoever. Uh, so no one, was, obviously Sydney was referring to it, no one was held responsible. I mean, we were kind of referencing it before, but why we're just now finding out finding out about this. I mean, for starters, there was a, a deliberate cover up. Even the news story that was a primary driver of citing the violence was taken down like the next day. Mrs. Kramer, I know you have uh, some additional facts in terms of the historical omissions or, or cover-ups, but it's insane. And it makes perfect sense why these events don't end up in our textbooks it, it, from the start if they're just being actively omitted. On, on purpose. So I looked up this other article. Uh, CBS News published this article last year in February. They did a two-month investigation where they investigated uh, the social studies standards in all 50 states and the headline is 50 states 50 different ways of teaching america's past since there are no national social studies standards basically each state gets to decide what they want to do and i'm going to read you from it cbs news found that seven states do not directly mention slavery in their state standards and eight states do not mention the civil rights movement. They're not mentioning slavery or civil rights. You know they're not mentioning Tulsa. Only two states mention white supremacy, while 16 states list states' rights as a cause of the Civil War. That was 2020. (laughs) What? This was in 20, this is from 2020? Two-month investigation, uh, 50 states, 50 different ways of teaching America's past. That is unbelievable. Right? So, like, teachers default. We default to, we have to teach 
what's in the state standards. Does that mean they might not also be learning extra and other things? They could be, right? But if you're crunched for time, as a teacher, I can tell you, we can't not teach the standards. We have to make room for those first and then anything else that we want to, right? So if these states don't require these things to be taught, they're probably not. So that, that that made me think about like, so then, right. So what is, what is the standard? Because now I'm thinking back on my, on my schooling growing up and I grew up in a, I would like to think, you know, I grew up in a, in a quote unquote diverse, like a big uh, city, a big, you know, New Rochelle is a diverse city. Um, I went to a quote unquote diverse school, a huge high school. Like, and I'm thinking back on all of that and I'm like, so what, so what is the standard? Cause I, again, it was not mentioned It like never mentioned, not even a day not even a page in the textbook. So what is the standard and like, and what is considered to be what has to be taught and then what is considered extra? You know, it's really interesting. And, and that all gets political, you know, that obviously all gets political, but North Carolina state standards, immigration, and this is in quotes, immigration of Africans to the American South, unquote, is mentioned as part of a lesson on why people move from place to place immigration of africans to the south is that supposed to be is that supposed to be slavery okay because i just want to make sure that i'm because that i don't mean to be laughing but that there's you, no way that that says immigration i know i know oh my god i know i don't even know what to say <laughs> just uh... i mean i know i i like i could read from this whole thing like it's nutty it's crazy it's crazy, you know, and and so now that the new, of course, teaching critical race theory, blah 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 blah, is just turning into teaching anything about race or anything that's real about institutional racism, um, and that therein lies the danger because there's a movement again to like, hey, um, I've heard that why we don't want why why do they want white children to feel guilty about who they are. But that's not the point. The point is teaching history what happened. So, you know, if we think that this kind of fight is over, it's not over. So there's literally no, there's no agreed upon objectivity for U.S. history, according to everything you're saying. Not nationwide, there's not. Each state sets its own standards, just like there's no science standards either. Oh, that, that might be even, I don't know what's worse. Here's another thing, just to extend that point a little bit. New York State has its standards and what you're supposed to teach, but each school district adopts its own textbooks. So you you have all of these textbooks out there floating around, some of them being published in Texas, some of them being published in Louisiana and other places. You're getting, unless you have a teacher that's sitting really ready to read an entire textbook, you often don't know what you're getting in those textbooks, you know. Textbooks are certainly, you know, sort of getting pushed aside now for technology and things like that. But it, it's still the core of what you're teaching. So even within a state, school district by school district, and we know how problematic Long Island is, um, they're, they're, they're picking things based on their own population. You know, Massapequa doesn't want to upset Massapequa, you know. <laughs> like, so they're going to they're gonna shy away from some things. And certainly Farmingdale doesn't want to upset Farmingdale, so they're going to shy away from some, some things, you know, not touch upon these things. Um, 
it's amazing. You come to a school board meeting and hear what the parents are complaining about. It's it's really insane out there. It really is. Farmingdale and Massapequa are in Long Island, New York. I know we have some listeners that span outside of our, our region. Oh, I'm such a regionalist. <laughs> No, we, we I, I checked I checked the stats. We have subscribers. We we are actually global. We have people that listen outside of the United States. Let's go. Let's get it. But side point, Sid, you were saying something. What Mrs. Kramer touched on before with when she mentioned how like, you know, right now the craze is like teaching critical race theory in schools and like the uproar with um, some white people about you know doing that and how they don't want to make white children feel guilty or whatever what have you and it's like this whole idea of saving the fragility of white people and white children and it's like what about the black what about my fragility I don't I how do you think I feel learning about something so prevalent in my people's history last year hello like I don't even it's and it's like and why is that even an idea like this is America this is literal history this is what happened in years past I just don't even it's just all of it is so interesting. And I'm happy now I was going to mention before how Juneteenth is now uh, is now being um, recognized as a national holiday now. I would really, really like to attend a Juneteenth celebration at some point in my life. I'm putting that out there for anybody listening who would like to invite me to a Juneteenth celebration. And technically, we're, we're having our own Juneteenth celebration by you know, having a podcast on Juneteenth. I, I think that's a start. It's a good start. I, I was hoping to have a, a barbecue so it'll be part of that celebration. We'll, we'll work on the barbecue. We'll definitely work on the barbecue. I guess to pull a string through this whole episode, for me at least, what's poignant for me is not even the actual subject of Juneteenth or even Tulsa. It's how many more historical events am I going to uncover throughout my adult life that I never heard of through what 15 years of school including college you know it's it, it's insane um so I guess the call to action is you know obviously kudos to black twitter kudos to anyone on social media that's willing to bring up or or dig up or keep alive narratives that are not maintained in we'll say public school education but you know overall in the political national discourse but yeah i think that's the call to action is just to continue to dig continue to research continue to you know read up on history and read writers that maybe aren't the norm in public school education but it's just scary for me to to be finding out about these things as, as an adult i think it's important to pressure politicians and realize how educational information is being disseminated and who controls that, right? Because you better believe there are people who go to the Texas Board of Ed uh, for the state of Texas and they're like, you can't teach evolution. You can't teach my child critical race theory. You can't teach this. You can't teach that. And if they never hear, but from the, if they never hear from the other side. It's happening in New York. We don't have to go all the way to Texas. Smithtown Again, for our listeners, that's a town in Long Island. They just oh, had a big falling out over critical race theory, a huge one. Like, we don't we don't got to go to the South for that. It's right here. Right. But the textbooks cater to Texas because it's their biggest market. The textbook companies cater to Texas and Texas factors in. So if Texas doesn't want evolution taught, a lot of science textbooks will not have evolution. 
if Texas says no Juneteenth, there's going to be a lot of textbooks out there. And if um, schools are beholden to these textbooks. So it's important to be uh, not just on Twitter and not just to read history, but it's also important, though, to um, know who's control, who's buying the textbooks for the school district, who is, uh, I would like to see the state standards, I would like to see the curriculum or the curricula, uh, you know, and, and that's why you have, it's important to have advocacy groups as well, not just uh, personal edification, I think. 100%. So just to, to wrap this up for our listeners, the call to actions are, according to um, Mrs. Kramer's to Edic, to continue to educate ourselves and B, to apply pressure to politicians, school boards, and those who control the textbooks or educational resources disseminated to our children. And I'm sure this applies to universities too, right? Yeah, and and support the uh, the arts and support the the people who are at the forefront of of really doing the research on a lot of these events and 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 bringing them to the public conscious again. You know, I, I said that a few times, but um, the more Jordan Peels we have, the the more these stories are going to reach everyone, and. Um, the more they'll be forever memorialized in, in these incredible stories that that some of these artists are telling and some of these artists are having the bravery to uh, to explore. So um, support the arts for all of our artists out there and, and all of our writers out there. Do it. Do the research. Um, you know, get into it. I know I know a lot of you out there are, are looking for ways to contribute and it's really really doesn't really matter what you do for a living you could always contribute to uh to uh bringing down these these uh racial barriers in this country of which there are many very well said mr kramer i'm sorry steve (laughs) for uh so if you're here at home and if you've been with us since the start you've heard us fluctuate between calling mr kramer mr kramer or steve we refer to Mr. Kramer as Mr. Kramer because he is my high school history teacher. He's a scholar. He's a scholar. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> that, is, that is why he has the title of Mr. Kramer. Other, other than that, he has been adamant to let both Sydney and I know that we are peers and all adults here, but it is hard to... Very hard. <laughs> yeah. So... We're trying our best here, but we're probably just going to keep. And it's and it's Mr. Kramer to all of you out there, just so we're clear. Oh no! So resources, um, Mr. Kramer. The two shows that you recommended are, if you could rattle them off again for our listeners. Yeah, Watchmen and Lovecraft Country are are. Uh, I mean, Watch Watchmen, you know, breaks down a lot of barriers, but uh, it. it the openings, the opening episode focuses on on Tulsa and Lovecraft Country. Um, if I could, just real quick, H.P. Lovecraft was a science fiction writer who was who was nuts. He was crazy, and wrote really psychopathic kind of uh, science fiction, which which on the surface is really good. But he was also an incredible racist. He was uh, part of a racist society, um, you know, believed in eugenics and and all of those things and. Jordan Peele took his stories and and turned them into black stories. 
So it was like the ultimate FU to H.P. Lovecraft that he took these stories and owned them as a black writer and a black producer. And and, and really, the, the show was really phenomenal. I, I thought it was really phenomenal. But Tulsa plays a huge role. The the Black Wall Street plays a huge role in the telling of that of those stories. Um, so you know, like all of Jordan Peele's stuff, the the his his his, I think his grasp on race relations is is really um, at the top. I don't think anybody's really doing it better than he's doing it right now in uh, in the arts. So. Um, that's, that's that's my pitch, Jordan. If you're listening, come on, discriminology, <laughs> the Jordan Field Show, <laughs> shameless plug, shameless, shameless plug. <laughs> we have to tag him, Malik. Tag him when you post this. I will. Uh, I will do my best to get in touch with. And uh, last last plug, the Juneteenth.com website has has a ton of links, ton ton of really good stuff. And there's a link there for celebrations, so you can click on celebrations and find out where the closest Juneteenth celebration is to you. Um, and uh, that'd be a really good resource if we could start uh, maybe attending and uh, showing some some power in numbers. We will also post some additional resources on our on our Twitter, our our Instagram, our Facebook. We ha- we have a little write up in celebration of Juneteenth, an open letter to our listeners. Check that out. We'll post some additional citations. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Discriminology. Uh, I don't remember if we introduced ourselves because we're used to recording, but uh, this is Malik Silal. I'm joined by Sydney Penn, Steve Kramer, and I can't do it more than once, so I'm going to go with Mrs. Kramer. Esther Hernandez Kramer. <laughs> we will uh, we'll catch everyone on the next podcast. Thank you for tuning into the season two finale. And thank you for continuing to support the podcast. Bye, everybody. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Discriminology Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and to follow us on Instagram at Discriminology underscore podcast or on Facebook at Discriminology 3. Until next time, peace.